Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to the World Economic Forum here in Davos, Switzerland. I'm Julia Chatterley. And it's the first ever springtime meeting and the first in-person, of course, since the pandemic began. There's no shortage, clearly, of urgent issues to discuss for business leaders, for world leaders. Let me just walk you through what we're seeing at this moment. It includes, of course, the three-month-old war in Ukraine, the increased risk of global recession, an escalating global food crisis, as well as the ongoing COVID pandemic. The head of the IMF saying today that the global economy faces its biggest test since World War II. Delegates also hearing from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who made another impassioned plea for more aggressive, fresh sanctions on Russia in a virtual address earlier today. Just listen to this. There should be maximum so that Russia and every other potential aggressor who wants to wage a brutal war against its neighbor would clearly know the immediate consequences for their actions. And I believe there's still no such sanctions against Russia. And there should be. There should be Russian oil embargoes. All the Russian banks should be bought. No exceptions. There is no better there is no better person to discuss this with than Richard Quest, who joins us now. Number twenty one. I think so, yes. Twenty one. I yeah. believe yeah. for you. And the sun may be out, but oh boy, the clouds are gathering and you feel it, I think, in the conversations that you're having yeah. here. Completely. This is a time for serious people in serious places. And so yes, whilst there's a lot of froth if you will, on the promenade and the cyber this and the you know, Bitcoin that and all that. In the conference centre, every conversation I've had, first of all, you've got to remember, a lot of people aren't here. So the only people who are here are those who really felt it was important to come yep. here to actually, as a policymaker, to, to, to be involved in the discussions. So the level of debate and discussion here is four or five notches higher than we've seen in recent years at Davos. There is really serious furrowed brows and, and what I'm hearing again and again is everybody saying this is absolutely difficult the most difficult time with the destruction of all the values that we'd held dear I mean, there's so many things here do you trust those serious people in the room to be able to address the crises and there's so many where do you even start whether it's still covid it's the climate crisis uh, which we often talk about here but we've got a it's so far beyond central banks responding to inflation it's a cost of living crisis everywhere in the world it's it's sort of whack-a-mole and everything you do to try and tackle that increases Correct. the pain. Yes, there's no easy solutions. So, you're right, absolutely. You, but Ukraine is the number one. Because Ukraine... Is it? Yes, of course, because from Ukraine flows out all the other issues. As long as the war in Ukraine continues, so you end up with supply chain issues. Yes, China's got that as well. But you get with serious food issues as long as Russia and Ukraine have that. And you have the energy issues with Germany, Hungary and Italy. So, the war in Ukraine is by far the most instant 
in a sense, crisis that needs to be at least we can't be dealt with, but managed as best we can. Yeah, the chief of the World Food Programme, David Beasley, said yes. to me on a panel earlier oh, today panel. that not, thank you, Richard, not opening the port in Odessa and allowing that grain to flow is, in effect, a declaration of war against food security. And I don't think you could say it better. Like, we have to be having these discussions here now. And the question is, and the risk perhaps is that we get fatigued with war. Oh, totally. What happens after the summer? When people in Europe come back after the first vacations in two years, decent holidays in two years, they come back, the war's still going, energy prices are high. The UK, one of the leading UK suppliers said yesterday, expecting even higher bills. And that food security you talked about. Yes. So, OK, in the developed world, it's from inflation. In the developing world, it's because they simply can't get the grain. Egypt, uh, the Sudan, wherever it might be, they can't get the grain from Russia or Ukraine. Well... Let's be clear, it was already a food crisis. It's just escalated for all Absolutely. of these reasons. There's Absolutely. so many things we have to Absolutely. address. But if this is still going on, God forbid, after the summer, mm. then people will start to say, my fuel bill's just gone up 70%. My weekly food bill has gone up 40%. And why? The real risk with this danger, or the real danger, is that we start to accept Russia territorial gains in the eastern part of Ukraine as being the price for getting this over and done with. That's something that Biden, it's something that uh, Van der Leyen, Schultz, Macron, um, uh, Boris Johnson, that's what they're going to have to face. And I'm just doing the math there. Not um, one of those faces an election of sorts later this year. What about U.S. midterms coming if those are the kind of pressures? And it's not, hey, I blame Russia for it. I blame my policymakers for not uh, acting enough to tackle it. Richard, I'm being told off. We have to wrap it's up. It's the economy stupid. That was the phrase. Yes. That, it was that oh. was the phrase. And that will come back to haunt. And so many of okay. them. Sorry, I'll go now. No, You'll be back. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Richard Quest there. As we were just mentioning, President Biden making... Unexpected headlines in Tokyo this morning, surprising his top aides yet again. The president was asked if the United States military would get involved if China invaded Taiwan. And this was his response. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. We agree with a one-China policy. We've signed on to it, and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that, that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not, is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in, in, uh, in Ukraine. The White House working quickly to clarify the president's comments. Blake Essig joins us now to discuss. Blake, I think my first response to this is, ouch, simply. Obviously, you would expect a welcoming of these comments from Taiwan, less so, to say the least, over in China. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. I, I mean, no question this was the biggest line to come out of uh, the press conference between President Biden and uh, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Uh, immediately, CNN was told by multiple sources, uh, several of President Biden's top administrative officials, uh, that they were caught off guard when he made those comments. And just moments afterwards, uh, the White House clarified that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity 
on Taiwan hadn't changed, uh, making it less clear whether military intervention would happen. Now, as part of that strategic ambiguity, uh, it's important to remember that the U.S. provides Taiwan defensive weapons, but has remained intentionally ambiguous on whether it would intervene militarily in the event of a Chinese attack. China has since responded to President Biden's comment urging the U.S. to earnestly follow the one China policy under which the U.S. acknowledges China's claim of sovereignty over Taiwan. And as you played earlier during that press conference, uh, President Biden did elaborate, essentially saying that the U.S. agrees with the one China policy, but that the idea that Taiwan could be taken by force isn't appropriate. Uh, President Biden has gone further uh, than his administration's public policy before on this matter, as he did last fall during a CNN town hall, also forcing aides back then to walk his comments back. Of course, uh, there have been rising concerns that China might be emboldened to go after Taiwan after watching Russia invade Ukraine. And previously, Prime Minister Kishida has hinted that he sees parallels between Russia's actions in Europe and China's expansion into the Indo-Pacific. Now, on the security front, along with agreeing to continue monitoring Chinese and Russian joint military drills in the region, uh, the two leaders did discuss the importance of peace and stability on the Taiwan Strait, saying each country remains committed to making sure that China doesn't change uh, the status quo by force. But uh, also, President Biden made it clear that the U.S. is fully committed to Japan's defense, while Prime Minister Kishida said Japan uh, would not rule out any options, including counterattack capabilities. Uh, Julia, domestically here in Japan, uh, there's been a push to increase defense spending from 1% to 2% of GDP and improve its defensive capability within the framework of the country's pacifist constitution. Uh, the two leaders also uh, talked about countering China economically. Uh, it was a primary focus of today's bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Kishida saying that Japan would participate in the Indo-Pacific economic framework that was announced by President Biden last October. Now, at this point, the jury is still out on this economic plan that's built on trade, supply chains, uh, clean energy, decarbonization, infrastructure, uh, tax, and anti-corruption. But experts say a lack of clarity, substance, and the U.S.'s recent unimpressive uh, commitment of $150 million to Southeast Asia uh, compared to the billions China has invested makes it a tough sell. Uh, that all being said, Julia, so far, 12 Asian nations are planning to join uh, President Biden's economic plan for Asia. Again, the main objective to counter China uh, economically uh, as far as their influence in the region is concerned. Yeah, Blake, you named it there. I mean, the whole list of issues, things to discuss, far outweigh the one issue, which is the definition concerns over the United States relationship with the likes of China and, and Taiwan. So I'm glad that we also shed light on some of those strategic relationships and the importance of them for so many reasons. Blake, great to have you with us. Blake Essig there. Now, here at the World Economic Forum, the war in Ukraine, as Richard was saying, front and center. With a dramatically altered security landscape, um, yeah, just I'm among many of the consequences, Russia went into Ukraine hoping to stop the expansion of NATO. Instead, its aggression triggered membership bids from both Sweden and Finland. And joining us now is Mikael Damberg. He's Sweden's finance minister. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining you. us. There's too much to discuss, <laughs> but we'll begin talking about NATO because this is very important. And of course, there were discussions over the weekend. Turkey, who's seemingly standing in the way of your future membership and, and Finland's, laying out their conditions. Can those conditions be met? Should they be met? 
I think from a perspective, we have now for 200 years been a non-aligned country. Mm. We had had uh, discussions with all NATO membership countries before our application. Uh, and now Turkey says that they have some some remarks and uh, positions. So of course, the we'll, position changed. Uh, yes, they, their position changed. Yes. So now we'll have to have a dialogue. Uh, and also our prime minister ha has had a talk with everyone uh, and both bilaterally and together with Finland and together with NATO, because we see that many of the NATO membership the countries actually want Finland and Sweden joining NATO uh, in our strategic position in Northern Europe, but also with our military capacities. So, so of course, this, uh, this has to be handled. Can they be convinced? No, I think I shouldn't speculate because I understand that Turkey in some other cases have had raised questions and sometimes they have been solved. So we're working very constructively together with them, having dialogue. But of course, this is a bigger question that not only involves Sweden, Finland and Turkey, it involves the whole of NATO. It does. You have the luxury or at least the foresight of not having the same strategic level of reliance in terms of energy on Russia, but your country feeling the consequences like many others, whether it's food price rises, whether it's energy price rises. What do you make of what we're seeing? Because there's multifold crises that we're, we're discussing here in Davos and, and the whole world's having to grapple with and, and decide how best to respond. It's not easy, particularly when you have elections coming up. Yeah. Of course, we see an effect on our growth, um, not as high as we expected before the war, but still a stable growth. We see higher prices, but we also see the long-term perspective that Europe really has, has to unlock our dependence on Russian oil and gas. So this must be the time where we actually step up and do more of the green transition. Uh, and what we see in Sweden, in our perspective, that's really creating jobs uh, in Sweden now. We have huge investments in the green industries in Sweden. So we see the possibilities also inside a crisis. Do you think other nations get that? No, Does I think it... many countries don't see the possibility to actually have economic growth and job creation and green transition on the same time. But Sweden and some other Nordic countries actually are uh, the example that shows it's possible. Now we have huge investments in northern part of Sweden, uh, in steel industries, in the battery industry, the car industry, the renewable energy side. So this really creates tens of thousands of jobs in our rust belt, in our uh, part of society where, where the development has gone the wrong way in decades, now actually sees new jobs and uh, and lower unemployment. Do you worry about the risk of global recession? Of course, we see that uh, as a possible threat. Uh, but, but not an inevitability. Not inevitability. It's how we handle the crisis. And also, it depends on what Russia do in Ukraine. Of course, that could set up uh, even a bigger fire um, in the global economy. And if we look at the situation today, You've played down the risk of some form of retaliation from Russia. And as you began at the beginning of this conversation, we'll see what happens with Turkey in the NATO situation. But, you know, there's a dual war going on here. There's a, a sort of cyber security risk war, and that's playing into democracies, into societies. How prepared are you? Because that also has to be a piece of the defence budget spending that you're focused mm. on. And it's sort of an underrepresented, reported risk, I think, at this moment, too. Are you prepared for that? 
I think Sweden is a digital front runner. We have the, the Ericsson, the 5G, we have the gaming companies, we have the banks being very digitalized. Uh, and and you start, yes, <laughs> so that's my point. That's my point. So very uh, far ahead in digitization. And that brings also risks and insecurities. So for us, we're, we're aiming at this, pointing at this, and we have to raise our awareness, but we also have uh, to gather all the competences in a cybersecurity center that has been inspired what they've done in London and Great Britain. So uh, and we try to have a, an international cooperation. It's not only Sweden. It's a European issue. It's also linked with our American partners. So we try to work very close to them as well. Is there reasons to be optimistic? Because I do think the mood here is, is very concerned about what we're seeing and, and the uncertainties of what we're facing at this moment, because that's the yeah. key. It's not like we have all the yeah. answers. We don't. The uncertainties are bigger now than before, yes, but it depends on how to handle the crisis. Uh, and for Sweden, we're kind of in a golden position. We have strong public finances. We have the green transition already happening. So for us, it's easier. But I'm more worried about the global scale, uh, the poorer countries in the world that actually will be very hard hit uh, by the, 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 the prices on, on food, for instance. So to also have a global perspective here in Davos is very important. Yeah, you're right. It's always the, the poorest and perhaps the weakest that are hurt most in these kind of crises, and we have to keep talking about them. Minister, great to have you with us. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Sweden's Minister of Finance, there, Mikael Danberg. Okay, coming up here in Davos, the head of semiconductor giant Intel and much more will discuss the global chip shortage, plus tackling vaccine inequality. The CEO of the Serum Institute of India, one of the world's largest vaccine manufacturers, is coming right up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Davos here in Switzerland. President Biden's stern warning to China over Taiwan, a reminder of its importance amid a global semiconductor shortage. Taiwan, of course, one of the world's biggest manufacturers of those chips. And one of the companies also working to tackle this supply issue in the longer term is tech giant Intel. And joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is the Intel CEO, Patrick Galsinger. Sir, fantastic to have hey, you with us. Thank you. What a great. joy. What a great spot. I know. <laughs> Despite the challenging discussions that are taking place here, and it's nice not to have the snow, um, you've said it, I think, in really powerful terms that everything that's going on, be it COVID, be it Shanghai port closures, the challenges, the issues that we have, and they're vast with chips are going to push into 2024. My question to you is, why is this not putting a giant rocket up the behind, politely, of US Congress to say, get the Chips Act done? Well, I, I, I couldn't be more anxious, excited, and aligned with that view. Let's get it done. Yeah. It has strong Republican support, strong Democrat support, passed the Senate, passed the House. Time to get it conferenced and get it on the president's desk. He has said clearly, I want to sign this ASAP. I want it done before the summer recess in July so that we can go bigger and faster with our build out. What's the holdup then? Is it just, I guess, some of the Republicans saying they don't want to give Biden a win before the U.S. midterms? Does it come down to, to posturing and politics? Well, you know, nothing happens fast in Washington. 
you know, and if I was running a business that way, you know, boy, you know, <laughs> we get, yeah, but, you know, we, you know we, we now feel like we're close to the finish line. And I'd say every one of your listeners, <laughs> tell your representative or your center, get this finished now. It is overdue because the world is moving on. Yeah, right. I We've seen strong actions in India, strong actions in Korea, Japan, you know, and here in EU, you know, they started a year later than the U.S. Chips Act. And I will probably see euros before I see dollars. And you are making massive investments accordingly. I mean, you've made investments, admittedly, in, in Ohio, and that's part of the bigger plan. But you've also said, and there was talk that this could be a $100 billion investment over the next decade. Do you need that CHIPS Act in the United States to do it? Because you'd put the money there, surely, anyway. But, hey, how about a bit of incentive? Yeah, and I've said very clearly. You know, we're going to go small and slow in Ohio, or we're going to go big and fast. It is right. very simple. Because without the in, uh, incentive dollars, we're not competitive worldwide. And that's what caused this. Now, think about it. You know, 30 years ago, 80% of this industry was in U.S. and Europe. Today, 80% of it's in Asia. How did that happen? Yeah. Right? Well, what happened was there were strong policies in Taiwan, Korea, and China. You know, because Congress never in the U.S. said, we don't want this industry. But those Asian countries said, we do. And they took, put strong policies in place. And what the CHIP Act is designed is to bring that back to parity across the world. It's about better balance. Indeed, right? It's just saying, I can't make major manufacturing investments like this in the U.S. if they're not competitive, yeah. right? You know, then I can't compete in the world scale. That's exactly what we're asking for. Get us back to competitive, you know, put those long-term research dollars at play. That's the heart of the CHIPS Act. Get it done. You, you have to make big decisions, long-term decisions at a time of incredible uncertainty. And I think that's part of the backdrop and the discussions that are taking place. And we've seen that sort of shakedown, I think, in tech stocks. But, of course, it's across the board. There's the sort of growth fears. There's cost of living crisis fears. And you can tell me to what extent all of that feeds into your latest earnings. Because even when I look at the client computing business, there seems to be a reticence to put a bit of money to work. How long does that play out? What's the recession risk? And I know it's sort of finger in the wind, but give me, the, give me your yeah. sense. Yeah, I think there's a bit of economic softening, yeah. right? You know, as we're seeing some consumer pull back as well. And, you know, we were so hot for so long. I also say some of it maybe allows us to have a period of a bit of supply-demand rebalancing as well. Fundamentally, the business market is unquestionably strong, right? And we continue to see that. And that's where, you know, I think the most acute things, you know, building automobiles and getting factories built are uh, strong. But, you know, hey, there's probably a little bit of inflation, monetary tightening that's going to cause a bit more of a reprieve. But fundamentally, our investments, you know, it takes me four years to build a new factory. Yeah. I cannot make those judgments on a quarterly basis when we see the industry doubling between now and the end of the decade. So our investment policies are through the decade. And we are going to make those strategic investments, even if eh, there's a little bit of bump for a quarter or two along the way. That's OK, because this is a long term play. What are we least prepared for? I mean, there are, what was it that the IMF chief said, uh, a calamity, uh, um, a cascade of calamities. That's not her words, but it's a pretty good one, a phrase, um, to deal with here. What worries you most and what are we least prepared for? Well, you know, I think all of these supply chain disruptions, you know, have just given us such a stark wake-up call. You know, and I call it that we've gone from just-in-time yeah. supply chains, and what we need to do is go to just-in-case 
supply chains. We need resilience in all of these you know, things. And you know, I've said, you know, geopolitics across the world has been defined by where the oil reserves are for the last five decades. For the next several decades, where the fabs are is more important because every aspect of human existence is becoming more Digitized. digital. Everything digital runs on semiconductors. Build the fabs where we want them. Does it matter more than food? You know, I, I've got a. I'm on the, <laughs> a crusade here because we have a global food crisis around the world and it's escalating. And part of that is the war in Ukraine. Is that in addition to what you're talking about? Because the idea that even fabs and, and semiconductors are more important than energy today is is a bold statement to me. It is. But, you know, I'd also say as we look at the food supply, yeah. you know, well, how those supply chain manage, yeah. right, through digital. How are, you know, the next generation... And be better managed. Yeah, and how are the next generation of, you know, right, uh, self-driving tractors and automation of food generation? It's all based on digital. Yeah. So, you know, it is so foundational to every aspect of human existence, you know, that we just got to get it done. You know, it's fascinating. You're going to come back and talk to me more purely about your business. <laughs> That's the beauty and the, the pain of Davos in a way that we talk about so much. But... You sort of positioned VMware before you became the, the chief of, um, of Intel, but you had 30 years experience, let's be clear, at, at Intel too. Um, I want to ask you about pay, because shareholders of Intel recently voted down what was a near $118 million pay package for you. Um, tough question. Is that fair? You couldn't bring more expertise and I think more proven expertise in what you've done. How do you convince them? Well, you know, the pay package as it is, you know, it was sort of three parts. You know, one was a base salary and base compensation, which is the 50 percentile of CEOs. Yeah. So you sort of say, that's fair, you know, right in the middle. Right. And then there was you know, essentially taking off the table what I was already at no risk from VMware. Yeah. And the third was other incentives that are entirely aligned with shareholders. I don't get a penny of that if the stock doesn't perform. So you, know, you can go calculate how much that's worth, but it's worth zero if shareholders don't get an extraordinary payout as well. So in that sense, hey, I think it's reasonable. At the same time, finally, I'm gonna give most of it to charity anyway. Now that's a great point. How much? Well, you know, my <laughs> wife and I made a commitment years ago that we were gonna give an increasing percentage of our gross salary yeah. to charity every year. That's over 50% of our gross salary now, and it's just gonna keep going up. So clearly, the majority of this is gonna to go to charity in all circumstances. If I get a little bit or I get a lot, we're excited to improve the world as, for as many people as we possibly can. That's the Intel model and you know, vision that we say that we are gonna work on technology that, that improve the life of every person on the planet, and that's my personal dream as well. And it's an important message. You're standing your ground, sir. Great to chat to you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We'll reconvene. There is much to discuss. Thank you. The Intel CEO there. All right, we're going to take a break. Stage ahead. The Ukrainian flags are flying high at Davos as President Zelensky calls for action, more action from world leaders. We'll be joined by one of the Ukrainian lawmakers representing their country here at the summit. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Ukraine's President Zelensky warning that up to 100 people could be dying every day in the east of the country as the war grinds on. And in the meantime, Ukraine's first war crimes trial came to a close this morning too. A 21-year-old Russian soldier was sentenced to life in prison for killing an unarmed man. Melissa Bell joins us now from Kyiv. 
in Ukraine. Melissa, great to have you with us. I guess we can suggest that this is the beginnings of some form of justice, but the truth is the war rages on. That's right, Julia, and that's what made this particular case being held in a civilian court even while the war rages on uh, so particular, so extraordinary, uh, so unique, uh, really. 21-year-old Vadim Shishimarin found guilty and sentenced to life in jail for having killed an unarmed civilian on the fourth day of the war. Now, he and his column had been coming in. Uh, some of his men uh, had then in a escaped in a stolen car. He'd been given the order to shoot the civilian in order that the civilian not report us. Now, Vadim Shishimarin intends to appeal. Uh, he says that he was following orders. That is his uh, defense. But the verdict, as it was read, uh, took 50 minutes to read out, with the judge really going to great lengths to explain uh, the uh, nature of Ukrainian law that Vadim Shishimarin was being sentenced uh, for having uh, killed a premeditated murder uh, that is in violation of uh, the customs and laws of war. And I think the fact that it took so long was really a reminder of the fact that this trial happens in that context. Uh, they have also explained to us, the prosecutors, that they want to move ahead with these trials because it is about sending a strong signal, Julia, to those Russian soldiers even now fighting in eastern Ukraine. But the other uh, uh, aspect of this uh, civilian court ruling, uh, even as the war rages on, is that uh, it happens, of course, even as prisoners of war are now being held on the Russian side of uh, this war. We heard uh, this morning from the Russian Ministry of uh, uh, Foreign Affairs that it was willing to look at the possibility of uh, a pro prisoner of war exchanges with regard to those Azovstal fighters. Remember that as we speak now, Julia, those 2,500 or so Azovstal fighters that fought till the bitter end to try and defend Mariupol, handed themselves over in full by Friday night, are now prisoners of war in the Donetsk People's Republic. We've been hearing today from the leader of the Donetsk People's Republic that a tribunal is being prepared even now so that the men can face trials of their own. So uh, there is, even as the battle goes on in the east, uh, this extraordinary tale of two judicial systems playing out as well, Julia. Yeah, we'll continue to watch that too. Melissa Bell, thank you for joining us there from Kyiv. Now, here in Davos, Ukrainian President Zelensky kicked off the summit with a call for maximum sanctions against Russia. And meanwhile, the venue typically used by the Russian delegation to promote itself has undergone a rebrand known this year as the Russian War Crimes House. It puts the violence and devastation in Ukraine on display for everyone to see. We're joined now by Ukrainian President of Parliament, Alona Shkrum. Alona, great to have you in the, with us. Um, why are you here? What's the message that you bring? And obviously, President Zelensky was chosen as a keynote to, to kick off this forum. Do you think he's being heard here, if not around the world, too? I really hope he's been heard. I think he's... You know, he's shown this new kind of honesty, a new kind of diplomacy. The standard diplomacy did not work for Ukraine. Uh, the standard, you know, tone of voice and the standard phrases did not work for Ukraine to stop this war and not, not help it to continue. So he's been very honest. He's been very uh, straightforward. He's been telling, because it is like an economic forum, what he exactly wants, what investment do we need, what we need countries to do more. And I, th I hope he's been heard. I mean, I've seen U.S. senators actually having tears in their eyes while he was talking and finishing his speech. So. It's obviously it's a very emotional time for us, but we really appreciate, you know, not the words, but the deeds that we have here.
he's proved brilliant, I think, on a regular basis at, at holding a mirror up to the world and making them ask themselves incredibly tough questions. And that's the key to your point, I think, about action too. What concrete action can you get? Because we have to talk about rebuilding. We have to talk about a broader Marshall Plan. And I know the IMF chief has talked about that. Are you having those conversations here to business? What city can you take ownership of? Can you help rebuild? Just talk us through some of those conversations. So basically, we are here with a woman delegation. It's five members of parliament who are women. For for, for men, it's much difficult more to, to leave the country. They don't want to leave the country. Some of them are fighting, even members of parliament. So we are here with so-called women battalion, a diplomatic battalion. And we are here each on a specific task. I would say there are four things that we need to cover and we are covering. First is obviously showing the real pictures, what is going on in Kiev, in Odessa, in Mariupol. Right now, President Zelensky said that people just died yesterday. This is the first time of my life where I'm so scared to open the phone in the morning because a person I know might be dead and a person I knew who was creating amazing festivals in Odessa region, a kite surfer, just was shot two days ago because he was evacuating people from the east to Odessa. So those are the horrifying things that we need to talk about. Even, you know, even in this nice spring atmosphere, we this is something we have to. Yeah, this is the first task. The second task is purely economic one. We have meetings with heads of CEOs of the biggest companies. Uh, we have meetings with investments. We have meetings with world leaders and country leaders who w- can take mentorship over specific regions. This is the idea that has been there for a number of months, but we have regions and cities which have very close ties with some of the European countries. For example, Mariupol is actually a Greek city. And Greece have told us a number of times that we are ready to help. We are ready to help rebuild it. We are ready to help the tourism develop after the war, after we win, of course. Odessa is a very francophone city. Uh, They spoke French there. We have French people there. It was built by a French architect. So obviously it would make sense for France to help with Odessa region, with the tourism, with the culture, with the investment. And there are specific companies who are interested in very specific areas of expertise, IT, robotics, uh, digitalization, even now when the war is still going. So we are having those discussions. Great. Yeah. And, I mean, and, that, and this is a rallying cry for you here as well. Yeah. So if businesses want to take ownership, have not yet been in contact, this is the moment where they can and, and you're here and ready for exactly exactly the more painful discussions are also the discussions that there are businesses here who are still operating in Russia and there are still countries who allow like Germany and Italy allow uh, their companies to pay for Russian gas in rubles so they're basically sponsoring Putin to continue this war while we here need actually to stop this war as fast as possible and in Ukraine believe me we don't want this tragedy uh, to, to come any to any other part of the world we don't want it to be in Poland we don't want this war to go to Finland, even though Putin threatens them a number of times, this needs to stop with Ukrainian forces on Ukrainian territory. I will make the point that there is a real grey area over those uh, euro-ruble swaps that are going on, and and we're going to push for clarification this week, I promise you. And the other thing, I think, is some of those businesses, and I've spoken to a number of them too, Mm -hmm. are making tough decisions, particularly those in the food industry, because... The global food crisis is exacerbated if Russia's fertilizer, Russia's grain doesn't get to the world too. So it's a, do you fight a bigger food crisis war or do you try and help Ukraine with the war they're dealing with? Um, I want to go to that because Mm -hmm. the breadbasket of the world, Ukraine, those ports beyond anything need opening because then it's not just your war. It's It's a war that goes on around the world to feed people. 
And you're here to promote that message too. Yeah, this is our fourth task, actually. You are yeah. completely right, because this is something we need very urgently. I mean, all of the messages are urgent, but this is something we need to be done and to be dealt before August, probably, right. uh, because Ukraine is a breadbasket for Africa, for countries of the Northern Africa, Middle East. Even in France, the price of croissants has already increased because we were not able to export the grains. Our storages are full. Our farmers are in bulletproof vests right now, taking it under the bombings, and they're doing everything they need and they will continue to do that but we need to deblock the ports in Odessa and we need the NATO or warships, we need the specific country ships to guarantee a safe passage uh, through the Black Sea to those countries who need it because you know we've had uh, COVID already, we've had the war and we are having the war in Europe we don't need hunger in the world I think that, that is too much for Putin to take and this is the catastrophe that he is trying to do, he is trying to be a terrorist who is terrorizing the whole world for the hunger right now Putin responsible potentially for a global famine because yes. that's where we could be headed Yes, yes, and he should be trialed for that in Hague or in any other international tribunal Alona Schrum the part of the battalion that was sent from Ukraine to spread the word. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. A powerful message. Okay, still to come. Two years into the pandemic and the world still battling to get COVID vaccines to the most vulnerable. We'll speak to the CEO of the world's largest vaccine manufacturer by volume next. The Serum Institute of India. Stay with us. Welcome back to a common message here at the World Economic Forum, and that is that the rich are getting richer. A new report by Oxfam shows some 573 people have become billionaires since 2020. That means a new billionaire was minted nearly every day during the pandemic. At the same time, rising food prices around the world could push more than 260 million people into extreme poverty this year alone. And one big area of inequality is the supply and the distribution of COVID vaccines. My next guest took the lead on vaccine production in India for the rest of the world too, delivering 1.5 billion doses of its vaccine by the end of 2021. Joining us now is Zadar Punawala. He's the CEO of the Serum Institute of India. The Institute is the world's largest vaccine maker by volume and its shots are mainly distributed to low-income countries worldwide. A huge pleasure finally to meet face to face. Yes. So it's interesting. The last time you and I were talking was Digital Davos earlier this year. Yes. And while everybody else was saying, look, we've got a supply crisis, we need to talk about the inequality, you were saying, hang on a second, guys, I'm not pointing fingers, but I think we've got a demand problem. And, and specifically across the African continent, you were concerned about the demand, about orders, about getting shots into arms. Tell me where we are today. Well, I mean, I, we're not in a very different place to that at the moment. You know, in November, when um, India lifted its temporary restriction, yeah. um, like most countries had their restrictions, our restriction went on a little bit longer. But as soon as that was over, we offered hundreds of millions of doses to the African continent. But, you know, sadly, their absorption capacity um, has not been uh, to the level that we all hoped, and we're all working together closely with them to try and... Uh, Why? What's going on? Well, it's a combination of factors. You know, as cases and the severity of COVID has gone down globally, especially in um, on the African continent, which is, of course, a good thing, um, you know, the urgency to come forward to take vaccinations has sort of dwindled, and, you know, so they've had their challenges that way. And there's lots um, of cost 
priorities to make as well, given yeah. the multifold crises that are going on, I guess. Um, are you talking to China, by the way? Um, well, we wouldn't have a problem giving them, providing them vaccines if they need it. But I think given the geopolitical situation, it would probably be tough for them to, to have a vaccine made in India. But we're happy to help any nation that needs uh, treatments for uh, COVID-19. A diplomatic response and the answer is no, to your point. Um, you know, it's anecdotal, but it's my own experience. I, I flew from New York where cases are rapidly rising. I'm vaccinated. I've had a booster. I got COVID and I got pretty sick. And I was mRNA platform oh, sorry to hear that. vaccinated. And, you know, I speak to people who are increasingly skeptic about needing boosters every six months. Why should I? Aren't vaccines supposed to work every five to 10 years? And you've made some pointed comments that perhaps play to the, the vaccines that you distribute. But, but you believe there's a difference between mRNA platforms and the more traditional, like the AstraZeneca's of the world. Yeah. What do we need to understand from your perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I don't have any biases. I mean, I'm just a manufacturer. Um, the way I look at it is that you want a vaccine that ideally would prevent transmission. Um, sadly, these vaccines have not been able to prevent transmission of disease, but have worked, all of them have worked very well in reducing the severity and preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Now, from my perspective, a good vaccine would be one that gives you a long-term T-cell response. Um, the messenger RNA vaccines are very good. They provide a good protection, but require a lot of boosting as well. And, you know, it's a new technology, and we're all very excited to see what um, happens in the future. But I've usually made and manufactured the traditional vaccines with the traditional technologies. And, um, you know, we're very excited of the future of what messenger RNA can bring to the vaccine space. But are you worried about skepticism? Because you know, I'm hearing it, people going, you know, I've had vaccines in the past, I get a booster and I'm, I'm done for life or I'm done for 10 years. And we have to get our mindset around the idea that, fine, if you're cutting out hospitalizations and you're cutting out deaths, then that's that's phenomenal, but you still have to get people to go back every six months and get a booster. That's always a challenge. That's a problem. Um, that's always a challenge because you need to get your information from the right sources. Today with social media and, um, you know, skepticism, as yeah. you mentioned, naturally that would create, create um, fear in people's minds. I think any vaccine that you can get your hands on is a good vaccine. That's Should the way to put it. Doing both, though. Do an mRNA and do a... Well, yeah, 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 just that yeah. One out I mean, uh, you know, that combination has worked out quite well to give you a, a best of both worlds, to speak, um, uh, to put it that way, and uh, it's giving you a longer-term uh, response as well. I have to ask, monkeypox. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to follow that. I'm not sure the world can even bear to read the word. What do we need to understand? Well, I think. We're all just, we've just got fatigue of all these diseases and um, uh, potential new pandemics. I think uh, the way to look at it is it does seem to ha need prolonged exposure okay. um, to be transmitted so and um, contagious. the message don't panic. So uh, messages don't panic. I think we'll wait and watch um, uh, to get more information and data of how it's spreading and, uh, you know, how to treat it. Um, so I think it's still too early and we shouldn't panic. No, it's interesting. You're also a prolific investor. And I was looking at your CV, investments in microfinance, wellness provider, um, a firm that manufactures test kits for, for COVID-19. You're also not above giving Elon Musk 
investment <laughs> advice too. And I saw it on Twitter. Um, you said, look, if he doesn't buy Twitter in the end, he should come and make cars in, in India. Yeah, I mean, he'll have some spare cash left over and uh, there's no better place to invest in India. You know, the regulatory environment, the, the talent, the hard work and commitment of the workforce, it's, it's ideally suited to manufacturing of Would any kind. welcome? Would, oh, absolutely. Really? We want as many foreign companies to come into India, especially as an alternative, you know, to China even, um, where you've got, as I mentioned, a great dedicated workforce, good, good environment, regulatory procedures. I think they just need to work out their, their uh, logistics on that, and I hope they come. Elon, if you're listening, have you had a response from him, by the way? I don't think so. I'll, I'll double you check, though, but he's, he's very active, <laughs> he's so I, I'm not as active as he is. Let me, <laughs> let me check if he's responded. Great to have you with us. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for all the work Pleasure. you and your team have thank done. Thank you. Adam Hinawala there, the CEO of the Serum Institute of India. Coming up after the break, fresh from his meeting with President Biden, South Korea's new president speaking exclusively to CNN. Our live report from Seoul up next. Welcome back. Before heading to Japan, President Biden visited South Korea, meeting with the country's new leader. And President Yoon Suk-yul has spoken exclusively to CNN, the first interview he's given since his inauguration just two weeks ago. Paula Hancock is live in Seoul and great access, Paula. An important relationship clearly to court in the United States. But I guess one of the key questions here is, will that have consequences for another important relationship? And that is China, just one of the things we can focus on here. Well, that's right, Julia. I mean, it was an interesting day to, to speak to the President, Yun suk Yeol, considering it's the day that President Biden announced that 13 nations were going to be joining his Indo-Pacific economic, economic framework, including South Korea. Now, I did ask him about this uh, in the interview, why he felt the need uh, to be part of this group. And he said that it was very important for his country's national interest. If we don't actively participate in the process of making these rules for economic exchanges and trade with the countries within the Indo-Pacific region, it would be a great loss to our national interest. So I think it's only natural that we participate in this. Now, at the same time, he also pointed out that he was considering joining working groups for some of the Quad uh, meetings as well. So clearly he is uh, considering and joining particular groups that are seen as counters to China. Now, bear in mind, South Korea is or China is South Korea's biggest trading partner. Uh, and China has uh, staged economic retaliation against South Korea in the past. When they installed the THAAD missile defense system, for example, there was a crippling economic boycott uh, that followed. So I did ask him whether he was concerned there could be some kind of backlash from Beijing. Even if we strengthen our alliance with the United States in security and technology, it does not mean that we think our economic cooperation with China is unimportant. So I do not believe it is reasonable for China to be overly sensitive about this matter. He also said that he believes China should, as one of the leading world powers, be part of the rule-based uh, international order. Now, of course, with that order in such flux around the world at this point, South Korea's President Yoon was at pains to point out that at least for the next five years during his tenure, his country will be very much firmly standing next to the United States. Julia. Hmm. An interesting point to make, and uh, to your very valid point there, world disorder 
I think perhaps there is a better phrase for it. Paul Hancock's in Seoul. Thank you so much for that. Okay, that's it for the show from the World Economic Forum here in Davos. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.